0: Well, through a uh, unique series of events, I'm actually going to be speaking this hour, and uh, I we're actually going to forego the scripture reading just for the sake of time. Uh, if you do have Bibles, and I do think you have Bibles in your pew, I want you to pull them out and go to Mark 6. This is something that I've kind of wanted to talk about for a long time, and now that we're here in ordinary time, it's it's more appropriate to address this, I don't have to kind of folded into a uh, discussion on another doctrine. Uh, but if you were here last week during the Sunday uh, sermon hour, you uh, heard an exhortation and a, a di- an interaction with the doctrine of the Trinity. And one of the things that I believe that we're going to see today through Jesus' teachings on prayer, his modeling of prayer, and then finally his instruction slash uh, learning on the job, if you will, with the disciples about prayer, uh, it actually reveals something that we examined last week. That is namely that Jesus Christ does not operate out of his divine power as a man, but rather that his miracles were fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that actually is a controversial idea. If if that doesn't sound very shocking, I don't see anybody gasping for breath or, or uh, looking... Like they're going to pick up a rock and hit me, um, some places you know I'd be my mic would be cut off. Uh, but it's actually very important because it's it's something that the New Testament uh, examines over and over again, and so it's been on my heart for a while to share some things about prayer. And uh, so I would just encourage you that as we listen, this is really uh, kind of my three cheers for spiritual disciplines. Many people in the Neo-Calvinist or the modern Reformed world, uh, it's kind of popular to poo-poo on, you know, spiritual disciplines like, oh, you don't need to read your Bible that much, you don't need to pray that much. We just need to maintain that we're justified. You know, it's only by belief. And um, I just am compelled by the example of Jesus that this is not a healthy mode. Uh, it's it's proper to reject and renounce legalism. Amen. But it's not proper to let the pendulum swing to the other side and then go off into the error of license or simply just uh, neglecting our spiritual duties. Yes, God is sovereignly working his will in you, and his will includes means. And sometimes those means look like praying and reading your Bible. So, of course, we're not approaching the Father through spiritual disciplines in order to earn his favor. Likewise, we follow the example of Jesus Christ who before he did any miracles, before anything was written about his devotion to the Father in secret, God thundered from heaven at the baptism that John gave and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And so I believe that this is, the role of the Christian that just as we've been adopted in Christ based on the virtue of Christ's merit alone and our faith in him which was given to us as a gift, that we also are said over by the Father that we are the sons and daughters of God in whom God is well pleased. Not to the degree or order that it was uttered over Christ in that he's not unveiling us to the nation of Israel, to be, to be seen as a messianic figure, but rather we're accepted in the beloved. And that's what the New Testament plainly teaches concerning uh, those who are adopted, those who are, who are restored to God through Jesus. And so I believe that Jesus' example of prayer is actually a model for us. It's not simply something that is uh, written about in the New Testament or in the Gospels for us to just get more information I believe that we're supposed to actually emulate this lifestyle of prayer. And so I want to encourage you about prayer today. Um, We were going to uh, have a reading, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the reading and we're just going to jump forward to the actual um, outline. So real quick, I want to look at five things today in this examination of prayer. I want to look first at Christ's teachings on prayer. We're going to look briefly at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Inside the Sermon on the Mount is contained a few statements about prayer, which we know as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We're going to look at his practice of prayer. So not only did Christ advocate for something, but he also emulated it or did it or modeled it. He lived what he taught, and this is so important for us as Christians who week in, week out are hearing especially good Bible teaching that comes through this church. You become more accountable the more things you hear. And your job as a Christian is not just to store up information about the faith. Your job as a Christian is to put that information, that that information would really fulfill the word, that it would form within you some structure, uh, instruction, information. It's literally the setting up of form and structure within a person. It builds up. And that building up has to be done unto a practice. It can't be done for the sake of... Education alone, Christian Bible teaching, Christian Bible reading is not an academic exercise that sh- that is divorced from application. This is the danger of modern seminaries. This is what they they permit. Many of them don't have plans in uh, set up for their students to both grow in knowledge and grow in practice. And it's vital that you do both. And so we're going to look at how Jesus's teachings and prayers uh, are in harmony with one another. He says to do something, and then we see him, him uh, himself doing it. Uh, from that, we're, I'm going to look at that statement that I made earlier about Jesus' power for ministry. That is, who Jesus is as the divine Son of God, born as a man, born as one under a virgin, or born from, born from a virgin, born as under one under the law. And that actually is, for us, the pattern to emulate. As I mentioned earlier, it's not that he operates through his divine power, but rather in union with the Holy Spirit. Looking at that idea and then moving on to the training of the disciples, I think in Mark 6, which is the reading for this uh, teaching, Mark 6 shows us a, a, a way of life, and we're going to look at Mark 6 as it begins to touch on the disciples themselves. Jesus does something over and over again in the in the Gospels, and then he begins to train the disciples, giving them some, some authority that he sends them out, and then they come back and report a good report. And then from that point, Jesus says, okay, now here's the capstone of that mission. Here's the end of that mission. So prayer is seen here as the precursor or something that goes before mission, and also the afterthought or the... Uh, the the capstone of mission it, it culminates it you can think of it kind of like bookends before you go out you pray and after you go out you pray so you you pray for boldness you pray for zeal you pray for uh divine encounters you pray for clarity and articulation you pray for god to move by his spirit while you're preaching then you go out and do these things you operate in power you teach and then come back and give thanks And that's really the pattern that we see in the book of Acts as well, which is especially helpful at this time in the calendar as we're moving to ordinary time in which we are hoping for and desiring and, and working towards the growth of the church and the fuller bringing of the kingdom. So from there, I believe that this will lead to a very short number of practical steps uh it's again as i said it's not a good enough to hear a teaching on prayer and not also immediately begin to seek to put it into force and so i'm going to give about five or six ideas around uh really practical things that m- you may think are non-spiritual but are actually quite important when it comes to actually praying as a as a lifestyle and a habit so let's go to uh uh the book of Matthew chapter 5 and 6 Matthew's recording in an, ag- an event that Jesus uh, is intending to demonstrate that he is a new Moses going up onto a mountain and and reiterating the law not replacing the law but actually explaining the original purpose of the law. He you may remember his teachings on lust and divorce and hatred and and fasting. All these things are fuller applications or more clear or more deep applications than what is actually Uh, seen just by a cursory or fleshly reading of the law. Jesus says in the law it said don't commit adultery, but he says the original intention, the full spirit of do not commit adultery is don't lust in your heart. And so Jesus is actually expanding the law. He doesn't restrict the law. He doesn't make it easier to do. He makes it harder to do. And that's exactly what Paul says concerning the use of the law. The law came to expand or to expand our knowledge of sin, the law did not come in order that God would uh, create more sin, but rather sin existed, and through the law, God is identifying it as such that we would have one clear standard to see what sin is and in the in this In the very center of this discourse, Jesus connects all of this life as as one who 's a disciple of of Christ, he connects it to prayer and he connects that prayer with a particular pattern and an idea that goes before that pattern. He gives a motivating promise for those who are obedient to his command. Many Christians have become Zen Buddhists in the way that they approach favor with God. They think, well, I'm just supposed to humble myself and I'm just supposed to be a servant of everybody and I'm not ever supposed to hope for great things in God. And if you look at any of the teachings that Jesus gave concerning prayer, fasting, doing good works, anything, obedience, it's all predicated on the fact that you should desire a reward. And so this this false humility, which is subtly entertained in the modern church, is actually, it, it needs to be rejected on its face. Jesus gives promises of rewards, and those make no sense with a meek and mild, humble, bumble Christianity. You are destined for great things in God, and Jesus has demonstrated a way that great things come, and those great things normally come through prayer. Jesus said that, uh, in a, In another teaching on prayer, Jesus said that he would give unlimited joy that is joy at answers to prayer, and then he said that your joy would be unending because you have answers to prayer so it 's not as if Jesus is saying so don 't and we know emotions are bad, so don 't pray a lot he 's saying that there is a reward attached to the obedience. Verse 6 in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if we take humble, bumble Christianity and say, oh, we never need to do great things in God, we just need to be low on the totem pole, God doesn't want to bless us, then we turn this teaching into Jesus telling us not to pray, because then we'll be rewarded. One of the things I think that's interesting about this verse is that Jesus doesn't specify what the reward is. And I think it's intentional. I think that the reward is greater than you can imagine. It will be more manifold than you can imagine. It'll have many faces. It'll have many uh, ways that it comes about. But essentially, Jesus is saying that your prayer life needs to be one that is not trumpeted. It's not exaggerated before people. And this prayer life that Jesus is, is describing is one that is done with the Father and therefore one that's done in faith. Jesus says that those who pray in secret are rewarded. At another point, it says that they're rewarded openly. So this idea here is that there's a cultivation of a life and a relationship with God on the part of those who are sons and daughters. And the reason I say sons and daughters is because then Jesus begins to open their minds to understand the Father and he does this, and this is absolutely novel in the, um, in the teaching of the day. Now, it's not novel in the Scripture that God is the Father, but rather that um, they were not examining him as such. They weren't approaching him as such. He opens this prayer, and he gives basically three ideas, that not only is this God a father, and therefore we are related to him in a familial relationship or a family relationship. But also that this father's name would be hallowed or honored or made holy. So this, this prayer is a relational prayer. It connects the disciples to the father and then begins to petition for the father's good. That is that his name would be hallowed and then that the earth would be transformed. It actually shows us something about the father. It's not the case that this prayer is just a formula and we need to do this formula and then if we do this formula, God will be glorified. No, this prayer actually teaches us something about God himself, that he is a father, that his name is going to be hallowed and that his earth will be transformed into the atmosphere of heaven. And the atmosphere of heaven is a place in which God's will is perfectly done, where there is no sin, there is no sickness. Jesus is telling his disciples to build into their daily pattern a prayer which, call, which calls on divine resource to answer needs that cannot be answered by humans. That the earth would look like heaven. That his will would be done perfectly. And so this is exactly what Jesus is, is talking about. But this is not just a formula. I believe in saying Lord's Prayer. When people say the Lord's Prayer in church services, I warmly and heartily agree with and join into. And I pray with intention. I don't pray. When Jesus says don't pray as the hypocrites, he means don't pray in a way that's just disconnecting mouth from heart or mouth from spirit. You can pray written prayers, and you can pray prayers that are already written down, or else Jesus, after saying this, would have told Matthew, now by the way, don't put this in the Bible because I know what's going to happen. No, Jesus is intending to communicate a lifestyle or an approach to prayer, something that should undergird undergird all prayers. It should be the foundation for how we approach prayer. There is a great God. He is a father. He is redeeming the world. His kingdom is coming, and this earth is going to begin to look like heaven. That's what Christ is praying for. And so not only showing us what to pray for, but showing us the orientation of, the, of God as the Father. We see him as one who is intimately connected. Now look at how deeply connected when we begin to approach God as Father, the rest of the prayer begins to make sense. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Why, why are we asking God to do that? Because God is a Father and we are children. Jesus says, unless you become like children, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see it at all. And so these, these disciples who are being uh, taught to be childlike are being taught daily to pray in this pattern, that they would examine their need and recognize one who can provide for their need. The Father is intimately connected with and concerned with your daily bread. That is the things that concern your daily life. It's more than bread your debts, or that is your trespasses that you make, those sins that you do against him and against others. Also, he's intimately concerned with keeping you in a lifestyle of forgiveness. Those who become Christians are encouraged to take some time to forgive, especially in this church, are encouraged to take some time to forgive those who have sinned against them in the past. But that doesn't mean that after becoming a Christian, now you just have a reset button on your bitterness and you hit it one time. It's now be, you're now being brought into a lifestyle of forgiving. Jesus actually says that they're to pray that the Father would forgive their debts as they forgive. And I take that word as to mean the like manner and like timing. So as you forgive. So this is Jesus' model and teachings for prayer. He says, go into secret, pray bold things, pray kingdom bringing things, pray things that uh, touch your day-to-day life. I'm always very concerned when I hear people praying for very spiritual things, but never anything that seems unspiritual. Because it tells me that there's some disconnect that they think, well, I, can, I really can do all the practical things that I know how to do, but I, I need God's help for the things that I can't do. But Jesus said that apart from him, you can do nothing. He's, he's, I, I believe he's intending to press that out to everything. I don't believe you can tie your shoe without the Holy Spirit or you shouldn't be, or your shoes would last longer. I don't know. The point being, God, Jesus is trying to connect these disciples to a father, and that prayer life with a father is so important. If you do not know God as a father, if you have what we refer to in the sozo world as father wounds, if you are constantly at war with male authority because you're transferring your hate, uh, your hurts <clears throat> from your earthly father to every other male in your life if you reject all authority whether it comes in the church or vocation etc this is an indication that you don't know God as father and that you have a deep need for a restoration in your heart and soul about who the father is and i'm convinced that this is part of the new testament offering that that we looked at last week that the love of god has been poured into our hearts by the holy spirit and so jesus is bringing them into the life of the Trinity as we've been looking these last few weeks. So moving from that, I want to look at um, this mode of actually praying. Uh, many times we hear sermons on pr- on prayer and then we say that was really good and then we don't do anything related to the sermon at all. And I just want to encourage you that that's not wisdom. Christ perfectly embodied his teaching on prayer in his practice. He did this over and over again. This is why I think it's so important. Occasionally, I'm I'm all for Bible reading plans, but I'm I really like Bible reading plans that don't cut up the books, just because of the way that I look at the Scripture and the way that I I, I get a little distracted and I have trouble remembering. This is not something that you will see just at one place in the Gospels, and and in fact, this is kind of why uh, this sermon, if anything, is a topical sermon because we're going to look at so many passages of Scripture. But in the, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, immediately after Jesus heals a multitude of people, which comes because he had just healed someone who was oppressed by an evil spirit, Jesus tries to leave. And I think this is really the first glimpse in the Gospels that we have, Mark one thirty four, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, Here, we just begin to see something that we already have trouble believing, that he healed a lot of people because we kind of believe that God doesn't heal people. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, that is, Christ departed, and went to a desolate place. I don't like this word in the English Standard Version. It says desolate. In other translations, it means secluded. So I'm getting from that that the word carries more than just a desolate place. It's not like Jesus is going into, like, the death valley in california where it's just like tumbleweeds and uh thorns and you know the fire swamp if you've seen the princess bride i i don't think jesus is going away from people in order to experience like the wilderness uh for wilderness sake i don't think this is a nature adventure i think this is a desolate place that is a secluded place i'm okay with there not being a lot of food around um in in that place but I, I don't really think the idea of it being desolate is communicating enough. The other translations use the word secluded, and I think that communicates more clearly that Jesus is going to be by himself with the Father, not to be by himself. And in fact, this is a great practice within the Christian uh, experience these last 2,000 years. we've In the English-speaking world, we call it solitude. And it's a practice in which people go and spend time, whether it's Uh, a few hours up to a few days not 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 speaking but not speaking with other human beings and so jesus emulates this pattern that he speaks about when he when you pray go into your prayer closet or go into your room and pray in secret well what do we know jesus did not have a home right the birds have their nests the foxes have their holes the son of man has no place to lay his head so where is jesus's house his house is the land and he goes to a place where he won't be seen, and a place where he can connect. I believe that this is is the key to Jesus's earthly ministry. Not only is the anointing of the Spirit the means by which he, he does his ministry, but this is the key to why his ministry was so powerful. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. This is uh, the pattern that we're about to see. Jesus does an amazing number of miracles, amazing quality of miracles. He goes off to to be by himself to pray, and either on the way or after, he's interrupted because people want to see him. And I think this is something that the Gospels say over and over again to the point that we have to examine this as Consideration that we have in our life, especially those who are learning how to do ministry or those who are doing ministry, this will always happen. This is my premise today that that will always happen. That you will publicly minister or do some uh, act of service and then you will seek to go to be with the Father and that is really where the true power comes from, a communion with the Holy Spirit and an engaging with the Father through prayer. And then from that place, there will be those who have emotional need or spiritual need or physical need, and they will attempt to place a demand or a draw on your account of, of spiritual experience and anointing. I think this is the, the pattern. So right after healing Simon's mother-in-law, uh, again, right after many heal, many people are healed and brought to him, Jesus attempts to do the same thing. Luke four forty. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. That's pretty cool. Let that sit into your, just let that, sink into your doctrine of whether God wants to heal. Verse 41, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, again secluded. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept, them, or kept him from leaving them. Here's again that pattern. Jesus does something amazing. He does... Uh, a, a healing event, hours and hours. It, it was evening when he went into Simon, uh, Simon's mother-in-law's home. She was restored from her fever. She was uh, able to serve them. She be, it says she imme- immediately began serving them. That is to say, her healing was so successful that it wasn't a gradual healing. She got over her fever quickly. And then from this, Jesus begins to be, uh, enter- uh, Jesus begins to entertain the town and by entertain, I mean just welcome. Not he's not putting on a show. Uh, he's he's permitting their presence to come before him, uh, and and so Jesus is attempting to leave in the morning. I, I'm convinced that this was an all night prayer and miracles demonstration. I mean, if, imagine if something like that happened today, and you you had a few hours of people dramatically being healed, and then. The surrounding neighborhoods and towns got tweets or Facebook messages. It would be way worse today, I think, in terms of how long the meeting would go on. And so Jesus is ministering all night. Now, you and I, I'm just going to say that I would want to go take a nap. And I probably, in the middle of praying, would take a nap. Jesus is going to be with the Father. And I think this is supposed to be emulated by us. Christ cultivated a love for the father which fueled his ministry and in fact desiring to be powerful in ministry is actually going to short circuit you you actually need to love the father more than ministry and if you ever mess up those priorities you're just choosing where you're going to kind of top out at and I believe that that is so clear from Jesus' example although it's not a didactic teaching in the rest of the New Testament I think it's wisdom, and I think we can learn from Christ's example in that way. His heart was not captured with the fame and approval of man. This is also another great temptation. Not only is our physical energy a temptation to put that before our relationship with the Father, but also to be to not be swayed by public opinion concerning us. Luke 5, verse 15, "...but now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of the, their infirmities." Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The other translations insert the word often because it's trying to communicate this sense that these verbs in the Greek convey that this was a pattern and a lifestyle. So we've seen a few examples in both Mark and Luke, and we're about to see more examples in Mark. Uh, but but here, the, the, the writer of Luke, he is... Uh, He's saying that this is a lifestyle and a pattern for Jesus. And so I believe that this is the way in which Jesus was successful in ministry. This is exactly how he was using power in ministry. It wasn't that he uh, was preaching or, or ministering out of his divine power, but rather being aided by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that those who deny the continuing validity of Christ's commission on the disciples today teach that he operated out of his divine energy and they introduce confusion into the incarnation and the reason why i want to bring that out is because they they claim to say that Jesus operating as a man was drawing on divine energy or a divine source of energy and not at all with respect to obedience and cooperation with the spirit as regards his manhood and this is important as christians you cannot introduce confusion into Jesus, He has one will, subsisting in two uh, natures that are hypostatically linked or unified, and and there's not two wills operating within within Jesus, and so this is really the mystery of the incarnation that Jesus has one source of motivation, that His His incarnation is perfect and complete, and that as a man, as one who is truly divine but for a time limiting Himself for our benefit. He operates in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that teaching that Christ operating o- co- uh, operated only out of his divinity uh, is actually a fundamental denial of the incarnation and therefore the Trinity. That is to say, if you do not recognize that Jesus was cooperating with the Holy Spirit, then you create a doctrine which does not exist in the scriptures that the Son of God was operating on his own authority and not in cooperation with the Spirit of God. And so understanding that the Spirit of God indwells and empowers and clothes with power those who he operates through, he has to be operating in the Spirit. It's not just Jesus is proving his deity. And in fact, this pervades almost all of the teaching that I've ever heard, uh, especially from a lot of the reform camp concerning his miracles, that he walks on water to prove that he's God, that he heals the sick to prove that he's God. And the question then has to be asked, okay, well, when Peter walked on water, was he proving that he was God? No, he was proving that he was operating in the Spirit, that he and Jesus were in another reality that was superimposed upon this one, that was greater than and more true than the reality that you and I are most comfortable with, and that Peter was living in accordance with the Spirit that Jesus was operating it. So I'm convinced that Jesus is operating as a man, and I'm convinced because of multiple passages in the Gospels. And we're gonna look at some of them very briefly. Christ's power and ministry was in constant harmony with the Father. In John 5, 19, he says, I can do nothing apart from the Father, right? And so it's in constant harmony with the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, we're not gonna turn there, but it simply means that Jesus took on the form of, of a servant emptying himself and the reason why he emptied himself was to be for us the head of the church and a like mediator one who could be a true atoning sacrifice because he was made like us in all respects jesus is not walking around on the earth in his earthly ministry cheating or leaning on the crutch of his divinity from time to time when when he needs to this is so important to understand, because if you do not understand that, then you don't understand what Jesus was demonstrating was made possible by the sending of the Spirit. This is why, especially after uh, Pentecost and after Trinity Sunday, this is so, such an appropriate place to discuss these things, because Jesus was modeling what a person who was justified or sinless could do being aided by the Holy Spirit. Christ Himself taught that He was anointed with the Spirit for the purpose of ministry. In Isaiah 11, it says that the Spirit of the Lord would be on the Lord's servant. In Isaiah uh, 61, Jesus is then quotes that in Luke 4 and says that this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But it says that in that in that passage from Isaiah, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for, and then he lists six about six things: ministry, preaching to those who are. Uh, You know, captive, opening eyes of the blind, uh, raising up those who are heavy laden with burdens, over and over again, the exact things that Jesus was doing in his ministry, he declares to this synagogue in the city of Nazareth, this is what has happened, I've been anointed with the Spirit. And this happens exactly after his baptism. Peter, in his summary of the gospel, also upholds this view of Christ. In Acts 10, 36 through 38, we we hear Peter giving a summary. He says he's speaking to Jewish people, people who would have been considered the people of God. He says to them, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. What happened at the baptism? The Spirit of God descended as a dove and remained on Christ. After the baptism, which John proclaimed, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is clear that that Peter is saying that Jesus is operating within a Trinitarian view of mission. The Father has anointed the Son with the Holy Spirit, and in the power of the Spirit, Jesus is doing the will of the Father, which is showing who the Father is, announcing and bringing the kingdom, and then finally delivering himself up to death to atone for their sins. This is Jesus' mission. Christ ministers in the power of the Spirit to demonstrate the presence of the kingdom and to be an example for all those who would come after him. Jesus says that those who come after him would do greater works. So if if Jesus is operating in, out of his deity, and all of the things which we see Jesus doing in miraculous power are actually the source, uh, not from the Holy Spirit, that is, they create some arbitrary division in the Godhead and say that it's only in the deity of Christ that he operates in in these ways, then Jesus is, is teaching something that's quite ridiculous because the logical extension would be that then those who come after him have to be deified. And that's clearly not the case. It's not the case at all. Christ taught the disciples the primacy of prayer and rest in the midst of ministry. He intended for this to be shown taught, and then modeled, and then practiced. And he actually gives them an assignment, and then at the end of this assignment, he takes them away to a secluded place. This is where we get to Mark 6, finally. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast demons out of many, or sorry, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. I was just doing a little bit of research last night, and I came across a cessationist article. It's actually a little book that somebody had written. It's it's one of uh, I, I I'm I'm always wondering whether or not um, these people are hearing their own arguments because they this guy had taken the passage in James where he tells the elders to pray for the sick and to anoint them with oil. He likens that to when John in his epistles is saying, don't just do works of, of you know, don't just love in, in tongue, but love in deed and truth. And he's, he went so far as to say James is encouraging them to use oil as a medicinal aid so that rubbing oil upon someone would be like a poultice, if you're familiar with a poultice, or, or some sort of anointing oil like a antiseptic cream. He 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 has embraced his unbelief so much that he actually, when he hears them, uh, you know James advocating that the elders should anoint people with oil, that he's believing that the olive oil or whatever type of oil they're using in that scenario conferred medical benefit through the properties of the oil. Brothers and sisters, that's profound unbelief and a denial of not only what happens in this passage, but really a denial of what James is is teaching about. He's saying the prayer that made the very next verse is the prayer that's made in faith will make them well. After this, Mark records the events surrounding the death of John the Baptist. I've got to move quickly. Uh, One of the things that's hard to see from this passage is that John the Baptist was not killed after they went out to the towns. Now, he could have been killed after. The chronology is not exactly very clear. But uh, I believe, I'm convinced, that this is when they heard about it. And if you have never studied these things, take a look at the passage in Matthew 13. Uh, I believe what's going on is this: Jesus sent out the disciples. They operated in power, and then they return. And before they returned, according to what we see in Mark, uh, in Matthew 13, some of the disciples of John, who went and buried him, came and reported to Jesus. And so, I want you to imagine what's going on in the heart of the Son of God right now. He has sent out his disciples. He knows that they're being victorious, and yet he himself. Probably grew up with John being his cousin, probably having great affinity, uh, great um, affinity with John, great love for John. Uh, I I believe that this is a relationship that actually we don't see much of in the in the New Testament, but I, I believe there was something there that Jesus and John knew each other. They had great admiration for each other, and specifically, we know that some of the disciples used to be disciples of John the Baptist, and so Jesus has these conflicting emotions going on in his heart. There's victory, there's, there's glory that's being done in the cities of, of Israel, and also he's just lost this friend and these disciples have just lost their teacher and he's taking them away to break the news to them. That's what I believe is going on in Mark 6. Jesus knows, being a, the good shepherd, he knows the, the highs and lows of ministry and you know, disaster and he's intending to take them away so that they would rest and that they would spend time with him. As the good shepherd, Christ cares even for the under-shepherds. He doesn't simply care for the sheep. The under-shepherds in this kingdom are also sheep themselves, and Christ uh, exemplifies one who protects the sheep and the shepherds. Verse uh, 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Verse 31, he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He wanted to show them, how he did these things. And I'm convinced that this is something that we're to emulate. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. It's interesting, I, I mentioned that as soon as you attempt to, t- to put this into force, that there will be some opposition. I think it's interesting that in the passage in Mark 6, it doesn't look like they ever got to that desolate place. Right after this, it comes the feeding of the 5,000. But I believe Christ's desire was to show the disciples how to minister in power and also intimacy with the Father. I believe that those two things going hand in hand are a key to success in the kingdom. And I believe that those who divorce one from the other or attempt to operate in the power of the spirit but never cultivate an intimacy in prayer life are actually doing themselves a a very severe disfavor because they're introducing a schizophrenic view of the kingdom in which God's power can operate based on promises, and God's and intimacy with God is not supposed to lead to power. I believe that people who cultivate a prayer life but never seek to demonstrate their experience with God are actually doing themselves, again, a disfavor. They're, they're a, a disservice. They are cultivating intimacy with God. They're, they're understanding more about who God is. They're cultivating a prayer life, but they're never utilizing what they've been given. And I, I'm convinced that the two go hand in hand. Uh, in fact, this is actually Christ's appointing of the disciples. In, in Mark 3, it says, uh, sometimes I, I think we have the danger of reading in too much, but the, I think the flip side can be also true that we don't read deeply enough. It says Christ appointed the, the disciples whom he also called apostles that they would be with him and that they would have authority. And I believe that that goes before the authority. I believe that being with Christ goes before. So if this pattern is to be emulated, what are the practical steps to do so? Um, Hopefully I've convinced you at this point that this is something that you should pursue. Uh, I believe that most of the time as, as Christians, we have a tendency to coast. And if you don't know what coast means, I'm just talking about driving. We have a tendency to, you know, when we're going up the hill, we put a lot of effort in. We put the pedal to the metal. We we get some momentum. And then in order to not have to break before the next light, we coast. Now, I don't think there are any lights on this road in this analogy. But the point is that you fall into uh, complacency and apathy routinely. And in order to combat that, I think there are some practical steps that you can do. I'm convinced that the greatest amount of anointing will come from those who are jealous will come to those who are jealous to guard their times with the Lord and guard guarding your times with the Lord looks like doing what Jesus did after all night prayer meetings and signs and wonders you go and spend time with the Father it's not going and spending time with yourself it's going and spending time with the Father and i believe that this is so foreign to most of the way that we we live today that it it kind of seems like another category that we don't even really have room for in our schedules. But I'm convinced that it's the way to ongoing uh, spiritual longevity and health. I believe it's it's a way in which we can uh, begin to see some of those things that we believe are for today. And also it's, it's a way to uh, cultivate a great prayer life is to intentionally put together some very practical, seemingly unspiritual things. Um, but they're helpful. I think the first thing that you need to do is you need to seek the baptism in the Spirit. And if you are not baptized in the Spirit, you have come to a great place. We specialize in the baptism in the Spirit. And you should talk to somebody about that. You should talk to one of the pastors. If you are baptized in the spirit then i think you should continue to seek the baptism in the spirit i think that if you if you've heard the teachings that our church has on the baptism in the spirit you see how the the book of acts shows people getting baptized and re-baptized likewise people who are serving the lord even in the old covenant are anointed for a year and then are re-anointed and i i think that cultivating a desire for the spirit is vital the next thing I think you should do is you should routinely ask God to bless your home with his presence. And I think you should ask in a way that's bold, that you would ask him in a way that is with faith, that is in, in uh, agreement with his will, which is that this earth would begin to look like heaven, that his will would be done here. I believe that you should ask the Holy Spirit to teach you how to pray. I think that for me, most of my uh, growth in my prayer life has always come from the times where I uh, c- uh, confess to God that I don't pray as I should, and then I ask him that he, by the Spirit and through his word, would teach me to pray, and then I also ask for a hunger. It's appropriate to ask God for hunger. And I, I believe that giving yourself to that prayer that you would routinely pray for God's presence, and a hunger for God's power, hunger for prayer, a hunger for his word, that that is a way to uh, develop a lifestyle. It's not just a one-time thing. I'm convinced that God wants us to move past revivalism as an idea, we're gonna seek the Lord for a time and then we coast, or we're going to develop a great prayer life and then slip back. I think that our lives are supposed to be passing from glory to glory glory to greater glory not glory to a different glory you you should be developing a prayer life that grows throughout your christian walk i believe after that one of one of probably the most important things that that i learned was learning how to pray read the scriptures what do i mean by that i mean when you go to psalm 1 and you hear blessed is the man who does not dwell in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. When I hear that, when I hear his delight is in the law of the Lord, I say, Father, I confess my, my delight isn't in, in your law. It's actually in a lot of other things. And so give me that hunger, cause me to delight. I think that prayer, God, cause me to X, is a great prayer. Cause me to delight in your in your word. So that's what I mean to pray, read the scriptures. And that's especially helpful in Proverbs psalms, and the New Testament epistles. It's not so great in numbers. It doesn't really work there that well. You guys aren't even listening. No jokes. No, no laughs were given. Um, so, I'm, I'm just kidding. You're probably listening. The point is that pray reading the scriptures is so important because, like it or not, you're not a very good prayer-er, and you're not very good at coming up with things on the off the top of your head. Um, and that's not an insult to you it's just that god has equipped the the writers of the scriptures with great wisdom and insight the very breath of the spirit of god and he allowed them to write things that are eternally benefiting to you and if you are sitting in your prayer closet and you're just you know reverting to bad habits of prayer whether they're you know self-introspection or you know being bitter I, there is a way to pray in bitterness against other people, and that's not effective either. Uh, I believe getting out of yourself and into the word is a really great strategy for prayer. It also helps you pass the time, and um, that's not unspiritual to to want to do that. Uh, and then finally, I think you should set apart a place in your house, uh, if you can. Now, uh, by saying that, I'm not saying that you wall it off and you put a lock on there and the lock is on the, on the key is like the verse about prayer. And, um, I think you can use that room for other things, but I don't think that that can just be your living room. I think it's helpful if you have the opportunity. Now, I think you should pray in your living room with your family. Um, but I, I think you should cultivate a lifestyle of prayer where you spend more than five minutes and therefore need a separate place where you can't be interrupted. And then finally, also a time in the day. I like to pray at the evenings. I know great saints of old always pray in the morning. Well, I'm not there yet. But uh, I think you should set a time in the day that's devoted to the Lord. I also like to pray in the shower. I don't think that's unscriptural or unspiritual. Um, I don't pray on the toilet. But... uh, But the point is that you should cultivate a prayer life and you should do practical things that you might think are unspiritual that actually will set you up for success and will allow you to begin to walk in this type of anointing, one that I think only comes through prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his experience of praying on our behalf. We thank you for his great high priestly prayers that he not only prayed and we were able to have written down through Matthew and John, but also that you would give to us an understanding of his intercession for us now, that we would see him at your right hand praying for us even as we speak, even as we pray. I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding in your your knowledge, that you would give us also a spirit of supplication, that we would begin to see you as the answer for everything, and that we would begin to orient our lives to you through a routine practice of prayer. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.